Amen. You may be seated, and uh, let me add my welcome to you. It's a joy to have you worshiping with us this morning and to see all you smiling faces out there. I want to take you back to the summer of 1987. I was with a friend, um, a man who had become a very dear friend. He was a pastor, pastoring in London, Ontario, and we were talking in his car, and he was sharing with me his life's vision for his ministry in his church. And as we talked, um, we, we came to this sort of kind of what for me was a pivotal moment when he said this. He was 33 years of age, remember. He said this, by God's grace, Paul, I will teach my people how to live well for the glory of Jesus. And then when God calls me, I'll show them how to die well for the glory of Jesus. 31 years later, my friend Mike showed his church how to die well. He had suffered with cancer for four years, and on Sunday, June the 10th, 2018, he entered the presence of Jesus. He was 64. He stared death in the face for four years, and he died with courage and with boldness for the glory of Jesus Christ. I'd never forgotten that conversation. I'd reference it often when I was talking to others, and when I visited Mike uh, a little while before he died, we spoke about that conversation. I reminded him about that conversation 31 years or 30 years before. And we talked about the importance of pastors teaching their people how to die well, how to live well in the shadow of death, and how to die with confidence and boldness and assurance how to die so that one's death becomes a vivid testimony to the truth of the gospel. But it was more than just dying well. Mike died very well, but he also lived well. He lived well in the face of his mortality. Living well, dying well in the valley of the shadow of death is all about accepting the fact that life is short Life is very, very fleeting, it's tenuous, and we live with the reality that our lives could be over in a moment. None of us know the day, none of us know the hour, none of us know the moment when our lives will end. We literally, all of us, are a breath away and a heartbeat away from the presence of God. And so we must be ready to die well, and we must be ready to live well in the face of the reality of death. When Paul wrote the book of Philippians, he was facing the possibility of death. Death for Paul was a very real possibility. He didn't know whether he was going to live or die. He was awaiting trial before Nero, the emperor of Rome, who was a maniacal, bloodthirsty sociopath. You read the history of, of Nero, and you will read the history of one of the most brutal, one of the most bloodthirsty, one of the most corrupt men who has ever lived. Tacitus, the Roman historian, tells us that, that um, Nero burnt part of Rome in order to clear 
away some of the tenements so that he could build himself a palace. The, the fire get out of control, and when it was finally put out about a week and a half later, uh, about two-thirds, if not three-quarters, of the entire city had burned to the ground. Nero looked for a scapegoat. He settled on the Christians, and he killed dozens, if not hundreds of them in some of the most horrific ways. This man was a lunatic. He was a bloodthirsty, brutal man. And Paul knows that he is going to be tried by this man. And so as he is writing Philippians, his life is literally hanging in the balance. And what's fascinating when you read this passage of Scripture is how matter-of-fact Paul is about death, how dispassionate he is, how calm, how composed he is in the face of his impending, potentially impending death. So I want to read the passage of Scripture in its entirety with you. If you go to Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 19, Paul says this, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let me, just, uh, let me just pray as we begin. Father, we realize in moments like this that our lives are brief. We know that we are fragile. We know that tomorrow is not guaranteed to us. Sometimes death haunts us. It is daunting. It frightens us. But here in this passage of Scripture and other places in this book that you have given to us, we see death treated in almost a cavalier manner. And we know, Lord, that that is rooted in the fact that there is life after death. We know that that attitude is rooted in the fact that Jesus has conquered death, that the grave has lost its sting, that eternal life is promised to those who know and love you. And so I pray this morning that as we study this passage of Scripture, you will give us a perspective that allows us to live well and then die well in the valley of the shadow of death, this valley of the shadow of death in which we all live until we see you face to face. So bless these moments in your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, and that you would touch our hearts and change us through this interaction in your word. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. It's amazing to me that the solemnity, the seriousness, the gravitas that we normally associate with death is missing from this passage of scripture. 
it's almost like Paul is saying this, and I'm just paraphrasing. He's saying, I want to be with Jesus, but I also want to serve the church. I'm really, really torn, and I don't know which, which to choose. I would prefer to die because I know that's far better than living on here in this world. But I know that staying is necessary for your well-being and continued growth and joy in your faith. So I think what's going to happen is that I'm going to stay, but I really kind of want to go, and I'm, I'm torn. You know, this attitude of the Apostle Paul that we see in this passage of Scripture is so radically different from what we see in our culture, isn't it? As our culture becomes increasingly secular, people are increasingly focused on getting every single ounce of enjoyment and pleasure and excitement out of this world because they are convinced that this is all there is. The guy with the most toys at the end wins. You only go around once in life, so you might as well get all the gusto you can get. That is the attitude of our culture. And sadly, in some respects, that's slipping into our church and it's finding a place in our hearts as Christians. What Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 is that we are aliens and strangers. That's how King James wrote it way back when. We're, we're visitors. We are exiles on this planet. This is not our home. This is simply the anteroom. This is the brief moment before life truly begins. If you will, this is sort of a gestation period before life really begins. That's the Christian perspective. But it's not the perspective of our culture. Christians live in the world not by loving it and by holding tightly to it. We live in the world by having a very tenuous hold on it. At least we should and there is the sort of the nub of the struggle. We, we kind of want to hold on. We kind of love what we have. And the idea of letting it go is sometimes very frightening, very uncomfortable. Paul's perspective in this passage of Scripture is very clear. He is a heartbeat away from heaven. And he lived with a, an attitude of tornness. I want to go, but I know I need to stay. I should stay, but there's a part of me that just really wants to be with Jesus. And so where did Paul get this confidence? Where did he get this attitude from? This holding life with a very, very open hand. Well, I think there's four things in this passage of Scripture that we'll look at very quickly. And the first thing is this. Paul was able to live the way that he lived because he was absolutely sure of his salvation. He was absolutely 100% unequivocally confident that in the moment of his death, he would be instantly in the presence of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19 again. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, it's important to know there that the word deliverance is actually the word for salvation. It's a, it's, a, it's a word that really doesn't mean I'm going to be released from my prison. It means that I am going to be delivered. I'm going to be saved one way or the other. I'm getting out of this situation. And he, he's saying, I don't know what that deliverance is going to look like. It may be that I'll stand before Nero and I will be released to go out back and do ministry. Or I may die and through my death I will be delivered into the presence of God. I will be saved eternally into the presence of God. 
Paul knew that one way or the other, he was going to be saved. He was going to be ultimately delivered. Paul had no doubt that God was in absolute control of every facet of his life, and he knew that there was a day appointed unto Paul to die, and after that there would be the judgment. It's my opinion, and this may not be the correct opinion, but I think that the book of Hebrews is, is, a, is a Pauline sermon. I think, I'm not sure who wrote it down, but it could very well be that it was a sermon that Paul would preach in various synagogues when he would go to share the gospel. And in that book, in the book of Hebrews, if it was Paul, he said this in his sermon, it is appointed unto man once to die. There is a day coming that, that God has appointed. It's not happenstance, you're not going to die as in an accident. It's not going to be a surprise to God that you end up dead. There is an appointment that each of us have. And after that appointment, we will stand face to face with God in the judgment. And Paul knew that. Paul knew that it wasn't Nero who was going to decide the day of his death. It wasn't his physical sickness or his frailties that were going to decide that. It was God who had already decided that. He knew that beyond any shadow of a doubt. But he also knew that, therefore, he was immortal until the Lord called him home. He knew that his sins were forgiven. He knew that when he stood before God for the judgment, that he would be covered over in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He knew that he, beyond any shadow of a doubt, he knew that he would hear these words, enter into the joy of the Lord, good and faithful servant. He knew that he would see Jesus face to face. He knew that death was defeated, that the grave was conquered, that the head of the serpent had been crushed, and that the only thing that was keeping him in that moment from being in the very presence of the holy God of Israel was the fact that he, at that moment, was still encased in that broken, bent body. And that when he would be freed from it, he would be in the presence of God. Now, Again, this is my opinion. We don't know for sure, but it seems like Paul was released from prison at this time in about 61, 62 AD. And he went on and he did more ministry, but he was arrested again. And ultimately, he was beheaded in Rome by Nero the same year, probably 68, 69, the same year that Peter also died in Rome. And while he was in prison in this second incarceration in Rome, he wrote 2 Timothy. And he says in 2 Timothy, he says, Timothy, the time of my departure has come. I am absolutely sure now that God is taking me home. My life is coming to an end. And then he says this in, chapter, in 2 Timothy 1.10. He talks about Jesus, talks about the gospel, and he says this. He says, Jesus has abolished death and has brought light Life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now that is an astounding statement for somebody. He, he's in prison. He knows that the day of his execution is coming. He is being poured out, he says, as a drink offering. I'm, I'm going to die. But this is the good news, Timothy. Jesus has abolished death. He has done away with death. And he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That was his hope, that was his confidence, that was his assurance 
that his death, his physical death is going to happen, but he was never going to die, as Jesus said in John, John 11. He was never going to die because death had been abolished. And the point is this. You can't hold this world loosely until you know that you know that you know that the Lord holds you tightly. You've got to know that. You've got to absolutely have that issue nailed down. Are you saved? Are you forgiven for your sins? Do you have an assurance that when you die, you will instantly be in the presence of God? Do you know that the only thing that's preventing you right this moment from being instantly in the presence of God is that you are encased in a still-functioning body? Because if you don't, you need to believe. You need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches so clearly that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, for your sins and my sins. He lived a sinless, perfect, holy life and therefore qualified to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. He went to the cross and God the Father punished him for the sins of his people. And Christ absorbed that. And in that same moment, he gave to us his perfect righteousness. Christ kept the law impeccably. And that perfect law-keeping life is now attributed to us if we will simply trust Jesus. What do you have to do? You do nothing. You do nothing. You simply believe. You simply trust. You simply accept that it's true. And so my question to you is, is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you trust him? Is he your only hope in life and in death? As the Heidelberg Catechism says, what is your hope in life and death? That Jesus died for me. That my sins are forgiven. Do you know that? Because if you don't, you can't die well. And you can't live well in the valley of the shadow of death. Secondly, Paul knew that when grace was needed, grace would be given. Look at verse, look at verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. In this passage, we see that Paul is not cavalier about death. He is not dismissive about death. He calls, in other places, in Corinthians, he calls death the last enemy. Death is daunting. Death is hard. Death is, the, is so completely unnatural. We are eternal beings. And the idea of death is abhorrent to us naturally. We weren't created to die. We were created by an infinite being for an infinite eternity. And that's why there is heaven and hell, which both are infinite because we have been created as infinite beings. So death is an enemy. Death is difficult. Saying goodbye brings deep sadness. It's not an easy thing. But what Paul was saying in this passage here is, that, is this, that he was confident that whether he lived for Christ or he was called to die by Christ, that he would not be ashamed that God would give him 
the courage, the spiritual metal, not to flinch, not to cower, not to recant, not to try to grasp and hold on for another few minutes to this life. That God would give him the grace and the courage to go through whatever it was that God was calling him to go through. That was his confidence. Paul knew that God would give him the grace to face whatever challenge he was going to face, whether in life or in death. I know a lot of us think about our death. I think about my death sometimes, and I think, oh my goodness, how am I going to handle it when I go into the doctor and he says, Paul, you've only got another six months. It seems so daunting, doesn't it? It seems so terrifying. It seems so overwhelming. But you know, God gives us the grace Not when we think about something that's terrifying, but when we face something that's terrifying. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He says, it is my eager expectation and my hope that I will not be ashamed. I won't cower. I won't turn on Christ. I won't recant my faith. I won't equivocate to try to please the emperor. But that with full courage and boldness, And strength, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, a lot of times we fear, and it's natural, but what we got to remember is that when the fear materializes on the horizon of our lives, and it becomes a fact for us that the grace of God will be there in that moment, count on it. That's what Paul's saying here. I want to tell you about a man that I met back in 1988. Yes, I am old. That's a previous century. Back in 1988, I went to a church in Georgetown. Stayed there for 32 years. His name was Don Green. Don was born in the Canadian wilderness. His father was a trapper. Don didn't see concrete until he was five years old. He was was blown away when he went to Perry Sound for the first time and he saw asphalt and concrete. He didn't learn to read until he got married and his wife taught him to read by reading the Bible. And he became one of the most most clear-thinking theologians I'd ever known in my life. He eventually had grade three education. He drove trucks. He was an elder in our church and one of the most godly men that I've ever known. I love Don came to me um, many years later and he said, I've been told that I'm, I'm dying. I have cancer. They don't have much time left. And we spent time together and a couple of days before he died, maybe a week before he died, he came to my office and he was in tears. And, you know, being such a lousy pastor as I was, I thought, oh, this guy's brokenhearted. He's dying. I got to help him. He came in and he said, Paul, I have got so much joy. I have never experienced in my entire life the nearness and the presence of Jesus as I've experienced in these last few weeks. He says, I can't wait to go home. I can't wait. I saw him maybe seven or eight days later on a Sunday afternoon, I went to his house and he was lying on his bed. 
and he couldn't talk. But I looked at him, and he looked at me, and tears in his eyes and in my eyes. And I knew that they were tears of joy because he was about to cross the threshold. He knew, and two hours later, he was gone. He was about to walk into the presence of the king. And in those last weeks of his life, God had given him such grace, such amazing grace that sustained him and gave him courage and boldness. A lot of us worry. How am I going to act? How am I going to behave? How is it going to be? Listen, when tragedy comes, when the hard times come, when the doctor gives you the diagnosis, you hear about a loved one that is going to cross over into the presence of Jesus, remember this, that God gives you the grace when you need it. Gives you the grace when you need it. Okay, I'm just going to clean up my eyeballs here a little bit. Don was a great guy. I love Don. See him again someday. I'll introduce you to him. Thirdly, and this is important, um, Paul was deeply in love with Jesus. Deeply in love with Jesus. I think one of the most, and there's a pile of really well-known phrases in Philippians, but one of the most well-known is, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, that's how it reads in English. In, in the original language, what Paul says is this, for me to live, Christ. To die, gain. The word is, is added by the translators to make it make sense for us. But, but Paul said it very just, just succinctly. For me to live, life, Jesus. Death, gain. That's what he was saying. That phrase, I think, sums up the worldview of the Apostle Paul. For me to live, Christ. To die, best day of my life. And it should sum up the worldview of every Christian. And it does sum up the worldview of every Christian who dies well. For me to live is Christ. To die unequivocally, without any shadow of a doubt. To die is gain. Because when a person comes to Jesus, Jesus becomes our center. He becomes our deepest love, our deepest passion. Jesus takes precedence over everything, takes precedence over every priority, over every passion, over every possession, and every person in life. That's what he demands. That's the place he demands in our lives. And so like Paul, we begin a life of service and devotion and commitment. We become intimate with him. We grow to know him. We increasingly long for his presence. We increasingly long to be in worship. We spend more time in prayer. We honor him as we read his word and spend our lives getting closer and closer and closer to him. Because for us to live is Christ, and to die is far better, as he says later on. For Paul to be in the presence of Jesus was the culmination. It was the best. There was nothing beyond that. He says in verse 23, to depart and be with Christ is far better. 
to depart and get out of this body, which has been beaten and is now, I, I, he now walked with a bent because he'd been beaten so many times. To get out of this body is so much better because I'll be with Jesus. To depart and be with Christ is far better. Paul's life lived in service and intimate fellowship with Jesus was why he longed to be in his presence. You see, for Paul, death was the culmination of life. For me to live as Christ, to die is face to face with Jesus. For me to live is Jesus. To die is Jesus. For Paul, death would be the consummation of a lifelong passion, a lifelong longing. Now, here's the point. I don't think you can understand this unless you think about it for a while in the negative. So what, what is it if you turn it around and say this? For me to live is me. For to me to live is this world. For me to live is my dreams or my goals or my aspirations or my pleasures or my passions or my possessions or this particular person. If that is true of us, then we cannot say death is gain. Because if we love this world and we are passionate about this world and we're absorbed with this world and this world has our hearts, to die inevitably must be loss. Because we are leaving behind that which we're passionate about. Does that make sense? Die in, to die is loss for the one who loves the world because in death we are leaving all that we are passionate about. Death is a loss for all, of all that we are enamored, captured, and enthralled by. And everybody wants to believe, everybody wants to believe that the death is gain, whether you're a Christian or not. Like people go, well, I don't know where he's gone, but he's gone to a better place, I hope, knock wood. Everybody wants to believe that, right? Everybody wants to believe the last part of this verse, that death is gain. But very few of us understand that for the last part of this phrase to be true, the first part must be true as well. Right? Think about that. For death to be gain, life must be Jesus. For death to be gain, life must be Christ. To die well, life must be about Jesus. So here's the point. For life to be about Jesus, we've got to learn to die to this world. Like I said at the beginning, 1 Peter 2, we are aliens and strangers. We're visitors and exiles. This is not our home. We don't belong here. We shouldn't fit in here. This world shouldn't enamor us. This is not our culture. This is not our people. This is not our home. This is where we belong. We're not created for this. We don't fit here. We're strangers. We're square pegs in a round hole. Shouldn't feel right. You see, we can't live or die well until we die to the world and to its hold on us. I want you to flip over to 1 John chapter 
to chapter, chapter 2, verses 15 and following, and look at what John says. 1 John 2, 15. Christians, don't love the world. Don't love the things in the world. If anyone does, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's a pretty equivocal, uh, unequivocal statement. If the world's your first passion, the love of the Father isn't in you. That's what John's saying. Because everything in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but from the world. But hear this, the world is passing away, along with its lusts and desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever, eternally, in heaven with God. So the question I got to ask you is this, and I don't want to be offensive, and I don't want to be rude, and I don't want to hurt you, but when you fill in the blank, for me to live is, you can easily fill in the blank. To die is gain or loss. But you got to ask that question. For me to live is, is it Jesus? Is it his cause? Is it is his kingdom? Is it his people? Is it his glory? Is it his law? Is it his righteousness? Is it intimacy with him? Is it his word? Is it reflecting his glory to your world? Is it? Because if it is, then it's gain to die. You get, <laughs> death is going to be so awesome for you. Because you're going to experience in death the fulfillment of all that your life has been about. But if you're honest with yourself and you're saying, you know, yeah, I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I, you know, I'm trying to be a good person, but really it's about, it's about me. It's all about my pleasure, my stuff, my family, my spouse, my girlfriend, my husband. It's about accumulation, position, power, possessions. Folks, that, that is not the heart of a Christian. And death is loss. Death is the loss of all that we've been passionate about, this world. But death is an eternal loss as well because we miss out on Jesus. We miss out on his presence forever. And we get exactly what we've been passionate about all of our life. This is probably a quote that you've heard before by C.S. Lewis, and in it he's talking about worldly Christianity. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it's meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So many people who call themselves Christians are like that ignorant little child making mud pies in a slum, thinking, look at what I'm getting. Look at what God is giving me. 
Oh, it's so wonderful. God gave me a new house and a new car and a new job and all this kind of stuff. God's just blessing me and I love my stuff. Thank you, God. Oh, my stuff. And C.S. Lewis says we're like ignorant children making mud pies in a slum because we have no concept of what we have turned our back on. The joy of knowing Christ and the joy of serving him and the joy of laying your life down for his cause and for his glory and the joy that will be ours when we see him face to face and he looks us in the eye and he says, well done, come here. And he gives us a hug and says, come on in. That's what I want for you. That's what Paul wanted for himself. But it can't happen, it never can happen unless we're able to say, for me to live is Christ. See, it's not until we experience the supreme value of Jesus and knowing him that we can die well. Because when we do, death becomes a culmination. Becomes the fulfillment of why we have lived our lives. We see him face to face, falling at his feet in awe and worship. And in that moment, in that moment, we know we are home. We're home. And that's what death is. It's going home. Going to the place that God has prepared for you. Going to your people. Going to where round pegs find round holes, right? It's home. And lastly, and briefly, because I know I'm long-winded, Paul stayed on mission. And I want you to see this because it's important. Paul stayed on mission. Read with me from verse 21. Oh, sorry, from verse 22. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, convinced that God needs me here, I know, I believe that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul didn't focus on his death. It didn't haunt him, didn't scare him, didn't preoccupy him. Paul's focus was, was much bigger than his death. Whenever it's gonna happen, I don't know, I don't really care, I got a job to do. I got a job to do. God's called me. And Paul knew that the job wasn't done. Now, if you read later on, even in the next verse, he tells us, I don't know what's going to happen to me. So, so there's a sense in which he's talking, I don't know, like I'm not sure. But he knew that his job was not done. He was sharing with his guards. Later on, we're going to find out that many in, in, in Caesar's household even have come to faith through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul was on mission in prison. In 2 Timothy, when he was in prison again, he says, although I'm in prison, the word of God is not in prison. Like he, he was just, he didn't stop. He didn't quit. The hour of my departure has come, but it's not yet. Here's the gospel. I'm gonna love on you. I'm gonna share Christ. He was on mission. Paul would welcome death when it came, but death wasn't his focus. He was living for Jesus. He was fixated on living for Christ. I've got five minutes to tell you a quick story. 
2014, I went to the doctor. He told me I had prostate cancer. And whenever somebody tells you you got cancer, you've never had that experience, it just stops you in your tracks. Even though mine was very treatable and I'm you know, doing great, it, it, it forces you to realize that you're mortal. Forces you to deal with the fact that you are going to die. Like I was always the guy, I would go to the hospital to visit sick people because I have had great health all my life by God's grace. I would stand behind the casket and preach the sermon because that's my job. And suddenly, I'm the guy in the hospital getting the tests and the biopsies and all that kind of stuff. And I just, as I said a couple of weeks ago, I've just finished six weeks of radiation to deal with the, the little cancer cells that are floating around, but, and hopefully we can eradicate it. But, but the point is this, that I'm going to die. And you're going to die. We're all going to die. And when you get, get confronted with that reality, it sort of takes your breath away for a second. Although you know it, now you're faced with it. Prior to 2014, I was pretty worldly. Now, I was a pastor, and I wasn't living in gross sin. I, I wasn't doing anything that would have, would have disqualified me from being a pastor. But I was worldly in the sense that I was, I was looking forward to freedom 55 or 60. I was very much looking forward to some me time, right? Miller time. Don't even, maybe I shouldn't have said him. Miller time. But I was, I was looking forward to me time, right? I was looking forward to kicking back and vacationing and doing the stuff that I wanted to do and just making life about Paul. That was my thought. And then I got sick and I realized... You know, life is fragile. I, I'm not going to live for long. And so what I did is I just started uh, what I had been doing, but what I started really doing intensely is I started reading through the Psalms. And one morning I came to Psalm 71. I think I might have told you this story. 71, 17 and 18. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh God, from my youth, you have taught me and I still proclaim your marvelous deeds. So even to old age and gray hair, O oh Lord, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to the next generation, your power to those who are yet to come. And that verse, God said to me, he said, Paul, that's, that's your calling. It's not about Paul time. It's not about you. It's about me. It's about staying in the fight. It's about staying on the field. It's about not quitting. It's about focusing on the mission. And what I realized personally, what I realized is that fear gives way when focus takes over. I'm not crazy about the fact that someday I'm going to die. I don't think you are either. But that's not going to be my focus. I've got to focus. And the focus is preach the gospel. Preach the word. Until you can't do it anymore, keep on doing it. And that's what God's called me to do. I don't know what he's calling you to do. But if you want to face the fear of death well, be like the Apostle Paul. Don't think about it. Think about what God's called you to do. Because when it comes time for you to die... You'll know in your heart of hearts, if you're a Christian, 
that it is the portal through which you will walk into the presence of Jesus Christ. You, you will know that there's nothing to fear because you're saved. You will know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you can face this thing with courage and boldness as a testimony because God will give you the grace in that moment. He'll give you everything you need to walk through that valley of the shadow of death. You will not be afraid for his rod and his staff will comfort you. He will be with you every step of the way until you go through that valley into the presence of Christ. But don't love the world or the things in the world because if we do, the love of the Father isn't in us. Love Christ, love his people, love his cause, love his kingdom, love his mission. And let that be catalytic to send you out of this place. I don't care, into the nursery, into the home that you care, those little kids, into that office, into that marriage, into whatever it is that he has called you to. Throw yourself into it passionately for the glory of Christ. And don't worry about it, you're gonna die. Yeah, we're all gonna die. But we'll die well for the glory of Christ if you focus on those things. Let me pray with you. <clears throat> Father, we're going to turn our attention now to the one who has broken the power of death. The one whose death destroyed death. The one whose resurrection has caused us to be resurrected to newness of life and will one day cause us to be resurrected in the presence of God. Obviously, that person is your son, our Savior, Jesus. And so, Lord Jesus, I would invite you to come and be with us now, be in this place, and share this meal that we are about to share with us. I thank you that you are here. I thank you that your purpose in being here with us as we take these symbols of your broken body and your spilled blood is to strengthen and to encourage and to embolden, to motivate, to strengthen so that we might go out into this world to be people who shine brightly in a dark and dying culture. So, Lord, minister to us, I pray. Meet us now. And whatever the challenge is that we face, whatever the allurement is that the world might be presenting to us, that passion, that, that lust that has a hold of us, I pray, Father, that today your Son would free us by his Spirit and that we would walk out of here in love with Jesus. I ask that for his glory, for his name, and for the blessing of your people and your church, Lord. Amen.